Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we come together to learn the teachings of the Buddha. We're just restarting our group learning program and we're starting with a three-part series over the next three Sundays that'll help you deeply understand the Eightfold Path, which is the core central teaching of the Buddha that is the path to enlightenment. This is your life practice in order to train the mind to get to enlightenment. We're going to be breaking it down into its three sections so that you can understand each individual section from the wisdom section to the moral conduct section to the mental discipline section. And by breaking it down this way, it's going to give us an opportunity to deeply investigate each individual step using the words of the Buddha. So today we're going to be exploring right view and right intention, which makes up the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. And then next class, we're going to be studying the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path. And then finally, we'll be rounding that out with understanding the mental discipline section, which will be on that third Sunday, so basically two Sundays from now. So between the 15th, the 22nd, and the 29th, over these three classes, you'll have a deep understanding of what the path to enlightenment is. But of course, you're going to need to study this more than one time. This might be your first introduction into what the path to enlightenment is. But I'm going to be taking my time and helping you step by step to understand each individual aspect of the Eightfold Path. As I mentioned today, we're going to be studying right view and right intention. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. And as we go, I'll be opening up for questions. So if you're in YouTube or Zoom, all you need to do is put that into the comment section and our moderators will see that. You can also electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Before we start moving into understanding this two steps of right view and right intention, I would like to just remind you of something that I shared last week, that as you're learning the teachings of the Buddha, it's important that you don't believe anything that I share because belief isn't going to help you to acquire wisdom. When you are looking to awaken the mind to enlightenment, you need to get to wisdom. With belief, you wouldn't know what's true or false. The Buddhist teachings aren't believe, 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 and then something good happens to you when you die if you believed properly. Instead, it's learn now, reflect now to independently verify the teachings. You practice the teachings to train the mind and transform the mind, and then you see the results now in this life. That as the mind is moving closer and closer to this enlightened mental state, you see the discontent feelings gradually diminishing. 
But this wouldn't occur if you just believe the teachings. So as we progress in today's class, I'm going to be helping you to learn the teachings by teaching them to you. Then I'm even going to be helping you to reflect a bit so you can see the truth for yourself through independent verification. Then I'm going to help you to understand how to move these into practice so that in daily life, you'll be able to then practice the teachings because that's where the real transformation happens. The teachings of the Buddha, there is a certain intellectual component to it that you need to learn, but where the real transformation is occurring is when you're practicing the teachings, removing the pollution of mind through the training of the mind. So I'm going to help you with all of that today. And as I mentioned, at any point as you have questions, I'll be stopping at different times throughout the class and opening up for any questions so that you can get clarification on what it is that I'm sharing with you. So let's go into the first aspect of what I'm planning to share with you, which is called right view. With right view, the Buddha describes that if you can understand right view, you can actually have this breakthrough where in order for you to eliminate discontent feelings and actually get to enlightenment, you need to understand what's actually causing the discontent feelings. So here in right view, you're going to understand as we go in today's class, what is actually causing all the discontent feelings that you experience, like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest little displeasure, this is all going to be explained in four simple statements for you where you'll understand the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward to the complete elimination of discontentedness. And there you can have this breakthrough of understanding what's actually causing your discontentedness. So therefore you can work to eliminate it, which is what the rest of the path is all about. Essentially, if you were going to take a hike on a hiking trail, there's usually a marker at the beginning of the trail that kind of tells you a little bit about the trail. It tells you, you know, it's two miles long. There's going to be an incline, a decline. There's going to be a bridge and a stream and things like this. And then you kind of know as you're making your way on the path, kind of what to look out for and what to address along this hiking trail. So right view is like that trail marker that's helping you to understand what's really going on in the unenlightened mind in four simple statements. And then as you progress along the Eightfold Path and learning it and all the other teachings that connect into it, then you're going to more deeply understand what this whole path is about. Because the Eightfold Path, which is what we're starting to cover over these next three classes, is the core central teaching of the Buddha. And all of his other teachings plug into it. And we're going to use his words to understand this Eightfold Path. Because unless you study with the words of a Buddha, you wouldn't necessarily know what he taught and what he didn't teach. Because over 2,500 years of history, there's been people that have gotten farther and farther away and they're not actually learning with the words of the Buddha. There's this oral tradition of just handing down teachings from person to person to person. So it's not until you go back to the original source teachings to see what did the Buddha teach because he's the discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. The closer you get to what he taught and practice what he taught, that's where you actually see the true results. So by using his words, you'll see what he did teach and what he didn't teach. And all throughout this program and all throughout this book and the entire book series that I've written, you'll see and be able to learn the words of the Buddha. 
But again, you're not believing them. You're learning, reflecting, and practicing to independently verify the truth and acquire wisdom. So here in right view, as part of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha says, in what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So here in the Eightfold Path, he's just pointing to another teaching, which is called the Four Noble Truths. Instead of saying the Four Noble Truths here in extensive detail, like he does when he discusses the Four Noble Truths, he's just giving a summarized version and pointing to the Four Noble Truths and saying that's right view. And then what you would like to do is study the Four Noble Truths in order to understand right view. So here under the line, I'm sharing just the top section of right view in the Four Noble Truths. So here you can see the Four Noble Truths say, monks, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is just the top section of the Four Noble Truths. It goes on from there. I'm just putting this here to help you build confidence that as part of the Eightfold Path where the Buddha is discussing right view, you can see the summarized version that he's talking about and its connection over to the Four Noble Truths. So now what I'm going to share with you is the Four Noble Truths in order to help you deeply understand right view and have this breakthrough that you can understand the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. And in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, you need to first understand the three universal truths. Now we call these truths because the Buddha knows that they're truth, I know that they're truth, and others know that they're truth too. But in order for the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths to be impactful for your life practice, you need to know that they're truth. And that's why you don't believe the teachings. I'm going to share with you these teachings so you can learn them. Then I will help you reflect so you can see the truth for yourself. And then I will help you understand how to practice. And where you need clarity, that's where you can ask questions. So this first universal truth called impermanence, this is where the Buddha essentially is helping you to understand that all these material objects and things around us are all impermanent. They are what's called a conditioned object. They arise, they change, and then they fade away. This is what's called a conditioned object. They are impermanent. So this is the basic teaching. And now what you do is you start reflecting on this to try to independently verify it. And the way that you independently verify the Buddhist teachings is you try to disprove it. If you can find something in this material world that is permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha and this isn't a universal truth. So you look around and you look at this body. Is this body that you have permanent or impermanent? 
it's impermanent, right? It's been constantly changing. It came together as an egg and a sperm inside the womb of, of a woman, and then it grew, and then as it was born into the world, it's been growing and changing. You've had teeth come in and out. You've had cavities in your teeth. Your hair keeps growing. You might have had color changes. Maybe your hair has turned gray. There's been different lengths and textures of the hair. You've had wrinkles on the skin, perhaps, depending on what your age is. There's been this constant change of the physical body. What about your relationships? Are those permanent or impermanent? Do you have exactly the same relationships in your life all throughout your life, or have people been coming and going in and out of your life? Well, of course, your relationships are impermanent. What about your job? Have you had exactly the same job your whole life? And will you have exactly the same job your whole life? Or have you had different jobs? Or did you even have just one job and then now you're retired or something like that? Your job or your occupation is impermanent. It's continuously changing. And what about your income or your salary? Has it been exactly the same or has it been going up and down or has it been going down, down, down or up, 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 right? This is the impermanent nature of the salary. And then you can look outside. You can look at trees. Are trees permanent or are they growing? Do they have green leaves and then the leaves fall off? What about the weather? Is it always sunny outside or is it sometimes cloudy, sometimes snowy, sometimes rainy, things like this? You can walk down the sidewalk and you can see that there's a certain foundation in the sidewalk and a certain smoothness and then there's a crack. Or you look at a fence and it's painted and then you see the paint fading away. This is impermanence. This is how you independently verify what the Buddha is describing because this universal truth, it's universally true throughout the entire world. So here in Thailand, all these material objects are impermanent, just like in the UK, just like in South America, Australia, Japan, Italy, no matter where you are in the world, these things are all impermanent. Now there are something that's called unconditioned objects. A conditioned object will arise, it changes and fades away. But an unconditioned object, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change and it doesn't fade away. So once the mind gets to enlightenment, this is an unconditioned mind. What you're gonna to hear today as part of the Four Noble Truths is that there are certain conditions in the unenlightened mind that's causing it discontentedness. But once you get to enlightenment, you've removed those conditions and now the mind is unconditioned. So those qualities of peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy that we talked about just briefly last class, those qualities of the enlightened mind, they're permanent. Once you experience the enlightened mind, it's unconditioned. There are no conditions in the mind that are causing feelings to arise, change, and fade away. Instead, those mental qualities of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they are consistent and persistent in the mind. You wake up all day long, and as you go to sleep, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught, these are unconditioned as well. This is why what he taught 2,500 years ago is just as applicable today as it was 2,500 years ago. 
people's understanding of the teachings have changed. The books and things that people write about his teachings have changed. But the natural laws of existence themselves that he described in his teachings, they're the exact same natural laws. And now what we're doing as part of our community is going back to those original teachings and rooting our practice in those original teachings because what the Buddha said during his lifetime, that is what leads to enlightenment. So there's things like this that are unconditioned objects. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. But nonetheless, all these material objects around us, whether it's our body, our relationships, our income, our occupation, the weather, trees, sidewalk, cars, you name it, all of these things around us are impermanent. Even this class, when we first started this class, there was a certain number of people in the class, and now there's more people that are being added to the class. And as we go, maybe some people decide to leave. This is all impermanence. There's gonna be some classes that you can attend over the seven month period, and then there's gonna be some classes that you might not be able to attend. And you watch the recording or the podcast or something like that. Even today, there was typically we're streaming to four or five places when we're teaching this class. Today, there was some impermanence with the live streaming software. We can only live stream to one place, which is YouTube. This is all impermanence. So the more you understand impermanence and you see it in the world around you, you will understand that this is a universal truth. And if you are learning this and you're reflecting on it in the class, which I'm helping you to do, and you're not yet seeing that this is a universal truth, now what you do in practice is you go around in the world and you look for something that's permanent. And if you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproven this and it's not a universal truth. So this might be something you choose to do in order for you to come to the conclusion that yes, this is absolutely a universal truth the universal truth of impermanence. The second universal truth is called discontentedness. The original word that the Buddha used in the Pali Canon at least is called dukkha. This is a Pali word that most people translate to suffering. I translate this to discontent, discontented or discontentedness. I'll explain to you why I don't use the word suffering, but if you've studied some teachings of the Buddha in other places, you might have seen this word suffering being used. I'll explain to you what dukkha is and why I refer to it as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And then I'll circle back and help you understand why I don't use the word suffering. So when the Buddha described dukkha, he described three feelings, a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. So the pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. These are all pleasant feelings for the unenlightened mind to experience. And then there's painful feelings, things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. These are all very painful for the mind to experience. Then there's things called neither painful nor pleasant. I put boredom and loneliness in there, but some people tell me that that's quite painful for them. So you could put that into the painful category if you like. But something like shyness, you can understand if you've ever been shy that it's not painful and it's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. Or if somebody you didn't know came and sat really close to you in a public transportation, you don't necessarily know this person and maybe they sit really close, maybe your body and their body is touching. 
it's not painful. It's not pleasant. Maybe the mind is just uncomfortable in that situation. It's dissatisfied. So this is what the neither painful nor pleasant is. The mind is essentially uncomfortable or dissatisfied like shyness or that person you don't know sitting next to you and the bodies are touching. So these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, the Buddha is explaining what's happening in the unenlightened mind. The mind is essentially going up and down and up and down because it's experiencing these conditioned feelings, these impermanent feelings. So once again, now that you've done the learning of this universal truth, now you start reflecting on this. You start thinking about your life and your experiences, the direct experiences that you've had in this life. You look over the different feelings that you've had, and maybe I've mentioned quite a few of them here, but if there's feelings that I didn't mention that you've experienced that don't fit into one of these three categories, then you should raise your hand or put a comment in the comment section so that then you can get help to see where they fit in. And if you can observe that, yes, the Buddha is explaining what is experienced in your mind, that it experiences these temporary happy feelings, excited, elation, thrill. It experiences this sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, and it experiences this shyness or this displeasure. These three feelings are the mind being shaken up. It's unsatisfied. It's unstable. And these pleasant feelings are part of that. These are called conditioned feelings because when your mind is so excited and so elated, you might fall down, you might twist your ankle, you might break your mobile phone. There's all kinds of other things that can happen there. The mind is discontent in that situation. And because those conditioned feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria are temporary, they're ultimately dissatisfying because they only last for a few minutes or for an hour or so, or maybe a day or so, but ultimately the mind moves to this sadness and anger and frustration. The joy that I'm explaining is part of the enlightened mind. This is permanent. So if you'd like to describe pleasant feelings as conditioned happiness, and then this enlightened quality of joy, this is unconditioned joy. There's no condition that needs to exist in order for this joy to be in the mind. It's just always there. You might even describe it as unconditioned happiness if you'd like to. That the enlightened mind is beyond pleasure and pain. It's not experiencing this up and down and up and down and up and down. It's just always joyful with those other qualities of peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness. So these are the three feelings of discontentedness or discontent or a discontented mind. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Now, if we translate this to say suffering, this explains to me the painful feelings really well. The sadness, the anger, the frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, it's quite a bit feeling like suffering if you experience those feelings. Then you know that, yes, those painful feelings you could describe as suffering. But when you are experiencing happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, would you say that you were suffering? Or if you experienced shyness, would you say you were suffering? Or if that person you don't know comes and sits next to you on a public transportation and your body was touching their body, would you say that you were suffering in that situation? 
Probably not. So that's why I don't use the word suffering here, because it only explains 33% of what the Buddha was describing as part of this universal truth. So that means somebody's missing 66% of what he was describing as part of the universal truth of discontentedness. And if you're missing 66% of what the Buddha was describing, then you're not going to be able to make a really strong effort towards enlightenment because you're missing 66% and only understanding 33. But this word discontent, discontented, and discontentedness fully explains all three of these feelings. That when the mind is happy, excited, or thrilled, or these other pleasant feelings, the mind is discontent. It's shaken up. It's very elated, perhaps. This is discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. When the mind is angry, or sad, or frustrated, or feeling stress, or anxiety, then the mind is discontent. It's discontented, or experiencing discontentedness. And even those neither painful nor pleasant feelings, once again, discontent, discontented, and experiencing discontentedness. So I use this word discontentedness rather than the word suffering, and now you understand why. But even though you hear other people using the word suffering, I would encourage you to use this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. The third universal truth is called the universal truth of non-self. This is actually providing you a solution to one of the pollutions that are in the mind. When you learn about the 10 fetters, which is going to be about three weeks from now, you're going to learn about these 10 individual problems that the Buddha discovered in the unenlightened mind. And one of those is called personal existence view. This is where the unenlightened mind falsely believes, has the misunderstanding and misperception that this body and or this mind is you and who you are as a person. This universal truth of non-self is helping you to understand true reality so that you can eradicate that pollution out of the mind. Because as long as the mind thinks that this body or this mind is who you are, then it can easily be shaken up. Because when the mind clings to this body, thinking that this is who you are as a person, now there's a certain self-image that the mind is trying to project in the world. And if you hear certain agreeable things about this self-image, then you'll experience these pleasant feelings. But because of impermanence, it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading or disparaging about this self-image. And then when that occurs, then you'll experience painful feelings as long as the mind is clinging to this self-image, thinking that this is who you are as a person. So if somebody says, oh, wow, David, you're wearing white. You look so handsome. It brings out the color of your eyes. Maybe somebody will get pleasant feelings because this is agreeable speech about the self-image. But then it's only a matter of time before someone says, what are you crazy wearing white every single day? What are you going to do when you go out in the garden and in the yard and you're riding your motorbike? You're going to get so dirty. They may even call me stupid or ignorant, right? Well, if that's the case, if you allow the mind to get these pleasant feelings when somebody is talking in positive ways about the self-image, then when somebody says something negative or disparaging, then the mind is going to experience painful feelings. And then there's the same thing with the self-identity, that there's a certain self-identity that the mind is holding on to in the unenlightened state. Maybe 
I am an American or I am Italian or I am British or I am a police officer, I am a doctor, I am a lawyer, I am a student, I am a food service worker, I am this, I am that. There's all this I am, all this identity. I am a boyfriend, I am a girlfriend, I am a husband, I am a wife, right? All of these different things that are in the mind. And now when the mind once again hears things agreeable, I am a Buddhist teacher. If the mind is holding on to that and someone says, all Buddhist teachers are so lovely, they are generously offering their time, they're so kind, they're so loving, they help everybody to improve their life and get to enlightenment. Okay, and maybe somebody gets pleasant feelings about that. But now it's only a matter of time before someone says, all Buddhist teachers are leading people to hell. You know, how dare they do that, right? And now if you identify with, I am a Buddhist teacher, now when you hear that, an individual's going to get angry or sad or frustrated or some other discontent feeling. Or say, for example, that you are a police officer or a doctor or a lawyer or a food service worker or a IT worker or some other job, maybe a teacher. And now when you're in that role as a teacher or a doctor or what have you, you take on this identity of this is who you are as a person. But then when you retire, you might struggle because you feel like part of you is gone, right? Like maybe you retire or you change jobs and now you feel like you don't even know who you are anymore because for 20 years or 30 years you were fulfilling a certain role and you started adopting that as your identity. And now when you retire or you change jobs, you might struggle not really knowing your place in the world. Or if you identify as a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, when these relationships end, now you might find yourself feeling lost and kind of like you're missing something because you can no longer identify as being a boyfriend or girlfriend or some other role. And now the mind might be longing to get back into that role and you can only feel satisfied if you can identify as being a girlfriend or boyfriend again. So as long as the unenlightened mind is clinging to this body and thinking that this is who you are, or the mind, this self-image and self-identity, then it's only a matter of time before the mind gets shaken up based on these things. So the Buddha is explaining in the universal truth of non-self that this is not you, that there is no permanent self, that yes, there is a body, and yes, there is a mind, and these have come together to create what we call a person, but neither of these two things are you. So here's how you can reflect on this. Now that I've introduced you to this universal truth, and by the way, this is one that people tend to have a bit of a challenge to understand. So if you don't fully get it right now in class, it's okay. You'll need to revisit this later in the path. This particular universal truth isn't dependent on understanding the Four Noble Truths, but I introduce it to you here so that you're aware of it. And then later on, as you journey on this path, when we get to chapter 16, we'll be going through this one in detail and helping you understand it a lot more detail. So here's now that you've learned this, now you've been introduced to it as a teaching, let's start reflecting on it so you can see a bit of the truth in it now, even without going into it in extensive detail. The way that you reflect on this and see that there is no permanent self is you start looking at how you viewed yourself 
at different stages in your life. When you were a child, a teenager, early adulthood, and now you looked at yourself in a different way. The way that you have viewed yourself has been constantly changing from childhood to teenage years, early adulthood, and now. So there hasn't been this permanent self that this has actually been changing. Your perception of who you are as a person has been constantly changing over the course of your life. Another way you can reflect on this is I can ask you, you know, where are you? Amanda, where are you? You know, Bill, where are you? Davida, where are you? You know, Cornelia, where are you? And then somebody might say, well, Cornelia's right here or David's right here and kind of point to the chest or point to the head. And if you're pointing to the chest, you're not actually pointing to you. You're pointing to a shirt, most likely, if you're wearing clothing, right? You're pointing to a shirt. But let's get rid of the shirt, for example. And where is David? And then somebody points. Well, no, that's just skin. So let's get rid of the skin. Where is David? And someone points. No, that's just ribs and bones and muscle tissue and fluid and organs. None of that stuff is David. But the unenlightened mind thinks that this body is David. So now it struggles in the world thinking that this is who you are. And again, when you hear agreeable or disagreeable things, the mind gets shaken up. A third way that you can independently verify that this body is not you is that if you ever had an arm amputated or some other limb, are you less of a person because you have only one arm and one hand now? Well, the answer is no, you're not less of a person. You have less use of an arm and a hand, but you're not less of a person. So if this body is you, when you had an amputation, you'd be less of a person, but you're not less of a person. You just have less use of an arm. So these are three ways that you can independently verify the truth around what is actually causing the mind to be shaken up related to this pollution of personal existence view, that the mind is thinking that this body and this mind or this self-image and self-identity is who you are. And the Buddha is giving you the solution to that and helping you see that there is no self. And this is a universal truth. And as you progress in this path, you need to understand this more deeply and you'll need to practice in order to eliminate it. And this is something that usually comes much later. So that's why it's in chapter 16 of this book. But let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about what I've been sharing so far. You can put this into YouTube or Zoom in the comment section, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, sir. Miranda has a couple questions on YouTube. Yes, thank you, ma'am. Um, the first one here will be from Ilana. She asks, can you please confirm, is right view awareness, awareness regarding the cause of discontent feelings, is the mind's craving? Thank you. It's deeper than that. But let's get to that when we get into the Four Noble Truths, and then you'll be able to understand much more deeply what is right view. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, she also asks, could you please explain the truth of impermanence in relation to energy? It transforms, so its form is impermanent, but its state of being remains. Yeah, so there you can see it's constantly changing. It's not steady and fixed. 
it's constantly changing. This is impermanence or the universal truth of impermanence. Thank you, sir. And then she has a third question here. Is the mind defending itself when someone insults you because of its affirmations? If someone says you are mean and you get upset because you are seeing yourself as kind, Yeah, the reason why the mind is defending itself in that situation is because of what we're going to talk about in the Four Noble Truths, which is craving, desire, attachment. As long as that pollution of personal existence view is in there, now the mind is going to get shaken up and then the conceit and the ego, the arrogance, the pride comes in. And then now really what's at the heart of this is the craving, the anger, and what we call ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So as long as these things are in the mind, then the mind will come out with unskillful conduct, with speech and actions that ultimately makes the situation worse. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are all the questions that are on YouTube at this time. Okay. And then um, David asks on Zoom, for me, it's easy to see impermanence and material things and thought more challenging to see impermanence in my mind. Why it's so hard in my mind when I can see it easily in the world around me. And then he further explains, to explain better, I also can understand my mind is non-permanent, that I want to say that it's not so skilled to see the impermanence in self. Any practical suggestions or things I can do? And he says, thank you. Sure. So the impermanence in the mind that you can see is how you have different thoughts all the time, different feelings, different emotions. This is the impermanence in the mind that things are constantly changing in the mind, that you don't just have one thought for your entire life, but instead thoughts are coming and going and coming and going. This is the impermanence of the mind. In terms of getting deeper into non-self and helping you understand how to eliminate personal existence view and do what we call realizing non-self, I would rather wait until chapter 16 to talk about that so that way we can stay focused on the Four Noble Truths for today. That'll be a better time to address the understanding more deeply of what the universal truth of non-self is, and then the techniques and practices that you can employ in order to eliminate personal existence view to realize non-self. Okay, thank you. Um, And Thomas asked, Dear Teacher David, on the Four Noble noble Truths, it's possible to recognize already reached wisdom in myself, which equals teachings. And on continually changed reality, do I need to continually relearn the Four Noble Truths or Dharma talks will fill up or cover the subject? So the Four Noble Truths that I'm going to share with you today, it's important to learn those. And then you're probably going to need to learn them more than once to really help them deeply soak into the mind. Throughout this program, the seven-month program, I will talk about them probably about three, four, maybe five different times. So I'm ensuring that they're showing up at different times in the program so that you can get very, very familiar with the Four Noble Truths because the first time you learn them, some people really start to understand it at that point, but then to actually move it into practice is a whole nother aspect. And that's what this whole 
program is about. So I will introduce them to you here. I will help you learn them deeply today. And then we're going to learn them several more times throughout the program. And for some of you guys, it might really click today and you have that breakthrough. For other people, you might need to really think about these multiple times. And that's why they come up in the program multiple times to give you an opportunity to be able to learn them, to reflect on them and practice and really absorb what it is that the Buddha is explaining as part of the Four Noble Truths which we're going to get to after the question period for these three universal truths. Okay, thank you, sir. And Marcy has her hand raised. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, the question I have is just, and Teacher David, this might be something that you might want to answer at a later date, but it was something that uh, came to mind is that what what is it that the Buddha defines as the person? Is it the physical body and mind coming together that makes a person or is it just the mind? Like, that's basically my question. Sure. He describes it as the body and mind coming together. And these two things create a third thing, which is the person. So he describes the body as one thing, the mind as something different. And the combination of the two is the person. So that way you can see at death when the mind and the body separate there's no longer a person there's just a physical body and there's just a mind thank you mm -hmm. let's go to miranda she has another question on youtube yes thank you ma'am on youtube joe neal asks is there a difference between universal impermanence and life-spanning permanence because i have had many permanent staples that have been with me my entire life the universal truth of impermanence is essentially not just within your life, it's life spanning. So if you're saying staples, meaning like staples in the body, maybe you've had a surgery or something like that. At one time you didn't have those staples. Now they're in the body as part of a surgery, but those staples are gonna ultimately degrade and disintegrate as this body degrades and disintegrates. So they're not permanent. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And that appears to be all the questions we have at this time. Mercy still has her hand raised, but I think that's from before. Oh, oh. it's gone. So that's all we have at this time. <laughs> okay. So let's go to this definition that I need to share with you before we talk about the Four Noble Truths. This definition is something that you need to understand in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, which the three universal truths were that as well. But there's certain things in Buddhist teachings that we use language slightly different than it's used in common language. So these words, craving, desire, attachment, as well as expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging, we define it through Buddhist teachings differently than what is used in common language. So you'll need to get familiar with this definition that we use in Buddhist teachings in order to understand, right view, the Four Noble Truths and have this breakthrough. So craving, desire, attachment, and even expectations and wants, holding, grasping, clinging, this is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. It's the longing and yearning, the mind chasing after the object of its affection. It's like the mind is pulling towards something. The mind thinks that that next new shiny object around 
around the corner is going to provide lasting satisfaction. If I can just get that new thing, that everything will be perfect. If you've ever been in the mall, walking through the mall and you see a new pair of shoes, you're like, oh my goodness, the new pair of shoes, I just got to have them. That's a longing, a yearning. The shoes themselves aren't the craving desire attachment, but the mind longing for them. Or if you've ever wanted a like a puppy or a a kitty cat or uh, something like this or a new car or a new job and your mind was just longing and yearning and you just felt like, gosh, if I can just get that new job, everything in my life will be perfect. And the mind chases and chases and chases and chases after it. This is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. And you should have observed this in your life. If you look at different things that you've done in your life, you've observed this mental longing where the mind is thinking that this object is going to provide some lasting satisfaction or this lasting fulfillment. And the mind chases thinking that this next shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide this lasting satisfaction. But ultimately it doesn't. And we're going to explain that in the Four Noble Truths. So a craving, desire, attachment, or expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging, is the mind longing and yearning for something, chasing after the objects of your affection. That's what a craving, desire, attachment is. So this has all been a building block to help you understand the Four Noble Truths, which is what I'll explain to you now. In four simple statements, you're going to understand the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward to completely eliminating the problem. So the first noble truth is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, where the mind's going up and down and up and down. So if you're experiencing conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, or conditioned painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and those neither painful nor pleasant feelings like shyness or displeasure. This is discontentedness and you know that your mind is unenlightened. Well, okay, that's helping you to understand the problem. The problem is that the mind is getting shaken up. It's unsteady, it's uncalm. This is the problem. Now we move into the second noble truth, which is explaining the cause of why this mind gets shaken up and experiences discontentedness. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So I'm going to say this a few times and I'm going to give you some examples to reflect on so that you can see the truth. Because remember, you need to independently verify this and get to wisdom. You're not believing these teachings. You're learning, reflecting and practicing so that you can independently see the truth. So those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, that discontentedness is caused by our cravings, desires, attachments, that mental longing and strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So here are some examples. 
if you saw those new pair of shoes at the mall and you chased and chased and chased and chased and you wanted them so badly, if you got them, you experienced pleasant feelings. But they were only temporary because you base those feelings on the condition of getting new pair of shoes. And as long as you got the new pair of shoes, the mind was happy. But now, say the shoes got lost or stolen or they got dirty, now the mind's going to experience anger or frustration or sadness. Because the mind based its inner feelings on the condition of this new shoes, that I've got these new shoes, now it's only a matter of time before that condition changes because it's impermanent. These shoes are not going to be new permanently. So now when that condition changes, now the mind experiences sadness or anger, or frustration, or some other painful feeling. Another example is if you had a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend. When you guys first got together, right? Oh my goodness, so many pleasant feelings. There's somebody who's showing you attention, who's sending you text messages, inviting you out to movies or dinner. They're checking in on you to see how you're feeling. You may even have intimate contact at some point, right? Pleasant feelings. Everything's new. Oh, this is wonderful. Feeling so wonderful with pleasant feelings. But now as time went on, these cravings, desires, attachments, these expectations started coming from you and from that person. And now eventually you got to the point where the relationship ended. And now when the relationship is over, the mind experiences anger or sadness or stress or anxiety, or maybe even boredom and loneliness, right? Because the mind was craving for this relationship to be permanent. It wanted boyfriend or girlfriend to be permanent not realizing that this relationship is impermanent. So now when the relationship was over, this is this craving, this longing and yearning arose the painful feelings because the mind based its inner feelings initially on I have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I feel so happy, so excited, so elated. But that condition of having a new boyfriend or girlfriend is impermanent. So now when that changed and now the relationship's over, now the mind experiences the anger, the sadness or boredom or loneliness. This is why the mind grieves at a funeral. When somebody dies, we often think that it's love that's causing the grief to arise. But in reality, we want grandma or grandpa to be permanent, or we want mom or dad or brother or sister, whomever has passed away. The mind is craving for them to be permanent. And now with the unenlightened mind meeting with this universal truth of impermanence, the unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence. It doesn't understand this universal truth. It lacks that wisdom. So now with this craving, this longing, yearning, wanting grandma and grandpa or whomever to be permanent when they died now there's this grief or sadness that arises in the mind the same reason why people grieve at funerals is the same reason why they grieve at weddings that mom or dad or grandma grandpa brothers or sisters see somebody getting married and now somebody might grieve they're craving this person to be permanent. And when they're going off in the world with somebody as a life partner, it should be a wonderful experience. Everyone should be so joyful. But no, because of craving, desire, attachment, the longing and yearning, 
wanting to keep this person permanently and now confronted with this impermanence where this person is going off into the world, there can be grief at a wedding. It can even happen when a child goes off to college. Mom and dad can be quite sad when their child goes off to college because they're craving for this child to be permanent. They're attached. They're longing and yearning. They don't understand the universal truth of impermanence that the child is going to go off into the world and they're not with mom and dad permanently. So these are a few examples. Here's another example that can really help you to understand this. If you've ever had a new car, a motorbike, or some other new object, and you bought this brand new thing, and you might have experienced these pleasant feelings, and now the mind is experiencing that happiness, excitement because of this new thing. Well, now if it gets a scratch on the brand new red car, and you come out and see that, now the mind might get angered or frustrated or irritated because it sees this scratch. This is just impermanence. But what the unenlightened mind tends to do is it thinks that the scratch is the problem or the person who scratched the car is the problem. And now there's this unskillful conduct where you get angry and irritated and frustrated and people have actually been murdered over this kind of thing and they've destroyed their entire life, maybe sitting in jail right now for the rest of their life just because they didn't understand the universal truth of impermanence, that they're craving for this car to look permanently beautiful. Now, we're not talking about what's right or wrong because it'd be wonderful if nobody ever scratched our car. But the fact is that living in an impermanent world, that this car is impermanent. And we can come out and we can see that scratch and we can get all angry and frustrated and irritated and have all kinds of problems. Or you can train your mind and you can come out and you can say, oh, okay, there's a scratch on the car. What will I do next, right? You can remain calm and you can make wise decisions. You can choose to go get it fixed. You could look around to see if anybody's taking responsibility for it. You could call the police. You could go into the store and look at the CCTV camera to see if you can identify who did this. But by doing it with a shaken up mind when there's anger and frustration, you're going to be unskillful and you're going to make all kinds of unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. But if you can train your mind to understand impermanence and that it's craving desire attachment that's causing the mind to be shaken up, now with your training, you can choose to remain calm and you can make wise decisions that resolve this in a wholesome way. But as long as the mind has this pollution of craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing, wanting to keep things permanently, then when you experience anger and frustration, when people in the world are doing things that you disagree with, things that you don't like, you're going to get angry and frustrated. And you're either going to overtly push them away out of your life, thinking that that solves the problem. Because with the unenlightened mind having wrong view, the wrong view is this person is annoying me. This person is making me angry or this situation is making me angry or frustrated. And because of that, I'm going to push this person or this situation out of my life. And now the unenlightened mind thinks that that solves the problem. But that's because of its wrong view. And that's why the mind just keeps getting angry and angry and angry over and over again. Every person you push out of your life, eventually you get down to a very limited number of people that you can have in your life because of wrong view. You keep pushing people out of your life and it never solves the problem. There's this aversion of actively pushing someone out of your life 
Or the other thing is that when you get angry, your speech and your actions might become so unskillful that there's harshness and bitterness and aggression that comes out towards this person. And then they just choose to leave out of your life. And in this way, a unenlightened mind cannot remain peaceful and joyful and harmonious in all relationships because it's constantly struggling, working through its own cravings, acting upon that with unwise decisions, which leads to unwholesome outcomes. So it's not until we understand the third noble truth that we understand how to eliminate this problem of constantly getting angry and frustrated and irritated and all these other discontent feelings, which then the unrelated mind falsely attributes it to somebody else or some situation, pushes that person out of your life, and now the other aspect of that is becoming unskillful through aggression, hostility, and bitterness. And then that person might choose to leave your life. So when you understand that the real problem is the craving, desire, attachment, then you won't try to control people and try to get people to do things your way. Because that's the other aspect of having wrong view is if you have wrong view and you think other people are causing you to be angry, not only do you push people out of your life or become hostile and bitter, but the other side of that is that you might try to now control people and put your expectations on them and try to force them or coerce them into doing things your way. Because the unenlightened mind thinks that if I can just get these people to do things my way, then the world will be wonderful, to be peaceful, to be so lovely if everyone just does things my way. But the problem is that there's 8 billion people in the world and you can't train 8 billion people to do things your way. So all you really need to do is just train one mind. And do you know whose mind that is that you need to train? It's yours, right? You only need to train one. And that's liberating right there. That instead of trying to go around and train 8 billion people to do things your way, you can let that go. And now you can focus on the real problem by establishing right view. The right view is that you're causing all your own discontent feelings through craving, desire, attachment. Every single time that you've been angry or frustrated or irritated or any other discontent feeling, the mind is causing it itself. You're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just that the mind lacks wisdom to understand that it's causing itself to be discontent. So essentially what right view is getting to is it's helping you to see, to take responsibility for your own feelings and your own emotions, realizing that anything that you're experiencing in terms of feelings are coming from your own mind. And when you can have that breakthrough and establish right view, now you can focus on the real problem. As long as you continue to blame other people for your discontent mind, you'll just push people out of your life overtly with aversion, or you'll be unskillful with bitterness and hostility and aggression, and then people will leave out of your life, or you'll try to control people to get them to do things your way. And all of this is going to produce unwholesome results in your life. But if you can have the breakthrough and understand right view that you're causing all of this yourself because of craving, desire, attachment, then it's just a matter of learning and reflecting and practicing, gaining more and more wisdom of how to eliminate this from the mind because now you'll experience real results because you're focused on the real problem. 
in the past, if you've been blaming other people or you've been trying to control other people to do things your way, it never works. You keep experiencing frustration and stress and anxiety over and over and over again because you're not focused on the real problem. And that's just because of a lack of wisdom. You haven't been exposed to it before. But now, if you understand this through the learning and you start reflecting on this and seeing the truth for yourself, then you can ultimately move to practice and start training the mind and transforming it. So one of the ways to reflect on this and see the truth in it is to look back right now over the course of your life and look at the times that your mind has been discontent. It may have been today, it may have been yesterday, it may have been last week or some other previous time. Look at the different times that your mind has been discontent with various feelings. There was something that your mind was craving. It was longing and yearning for something. It was chasing after something. And it either got the object of its affection and it got the pleasant feelings or it didn't get the objects of its affection and it got these painful feelings. So maybe yesterday or last week or last month, you blamed somebody else for what you were experiencing. But now with this wisdom, think about that same situation and try to figure out what is it that your mind was longing for, yearning for, you either got it or you didn't get it. And there was these conditioned pleasant feelings that arose and that were ultimately dissatisfying because they were temporary and they faded away or there was these painful feelings that arose and then you potentially became unskillful in your conduct. So if you can look back over the recent past and see some of those examples and you can see the truth that, oh my goodness, yes, I did cause that. There was craving desire attachment in the mind. You can see the truth for yourself. That's the independent verification. If you're having trouble to see that, that's where you can put that in the comment section or you can raise your hand in Zoom and I will help you to see what your mind was craving and longing and yearning for because you need to be able to see the truth that your mind is causing these discontent feelings yourself. If you're lacking the ability to see that, then you're not understanding the problem, the cause of the problem, which is the second noble truth. And then now we'll move on to the third noble truth to help you understand how to eliminate this. Because the second noble truth is helping you to understand the cause of this problem is craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing, strong eagerness. The third noble truth is helping you to understand that the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating cravings, desires, attachments, the mental longing and strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of your affection. Essentially, the mind is undisciplined. And here, what the Buddha provides as general teachings to help you address this craving, desire, attachment is breathing mindfulness meditation and a practice of generosity. So this is why on Wednesday I taught breathing mindfulness meditation and I'm teaching this four-part series over the next four Wednesdays that you may not be able to attend live or you may be able to attend live. If you can't attend it live, it's okay because you can watch the replay on Facebook, YouTube, or in the podcast because you're going to need to build up this breathing mindfulness meditation practice to train the mind because what we do is we focus on the breath and when the mind moves off the breath, 
This is the mind moving away, not wanting to stay on the breath. The mind's wanting to be this wild animal. So now you cut it off and you bring the mind back to the breath. And now the mind longs and yearns. It goes away from the breath. You cut that off and you bring it back to the breath. The mind's going to do this consistently for many months and many years, perhaps maybe a year, two years, three years. As you're training your mind, you're going to see more and more improvement as you go. But initially, when you first start, you might be bombarded with thoughts. And that's okay. You'll observe that that's the case. And slowly but surely, you'll experience progress. And eventually, the mind will stay in the middle. But even when the mind is enlightened, it's still going to have an occasional thought in meditation. Your goal isn't to eliminate the thoughts in meditation. Your goal is to gain control and discipline of the mind that you can observe with mindfulness or awareness of mind that the mind has moved off the breath. And then when it moves off the breath, you can see that and you know that with mindfulness. And then you can easily let that go and bring the mind back to the breath. This is gaining the inner discipline or the control of the mind. And as you're doing that in breathing mindfulness meditation consistently over the course of your life, now you gain this control in daily life that where you see the anger or frustration or irritation starting to arise, you'll be able to see that sooner and sooner because of mindfulness or awareness of mind. And now because you've been training in meditation, you can cut that off and let it go. Where before, you didn't have the control or the discipline to cut it off and let it go. You might not have even seen the anger or frustration starting to arise. But through practicing and training the mind in meditation, using breathing mindfulness meditation, you'll start observing the anger starting to arise sooner and sooner, and it'll be easier and easier for you to let it go. And now this is what you do in order to transform the mind. And then eventually, through practicing enough of all the steps on the Eightfold Path, you get to the point where there is no longer any anger that arises because you've eliminated the conditions that are causing it to arise. The main condition that's causing it to arise is craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing. So when you get a handle on this and you're walking in the mall and you see that new pair of shoes and you see the mind longing and yearning, wanting that new pair of shoes, craving for it, and you think, hold on a second, I've got 30 pairs of shoes at home. What do I need one more pair of shoes for? This is just the mind longing and yearning. This new pair of shoes is not going to provide any lasting satisfaction in the mind. This is the mind just longing and yearning and chasing after it. And you'll be able to cut that off and let it go and decide to just go on with your day, perhaps. And then in some cases, you're going to need a pair of shoes, right? And you'll go buy yourself a pair of shoes. But there's different things like this that your mind is chasing after that new job or new pair of shoes or this, that thing or the other. And as you gain control of the mind through meditation, you'll now be able to control it in daily life. And then we practice generosity as well. This is the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation. This is where you share your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources. And The reason why we practice generosity is because a mind with craving, desire, attachment 
tends to become very selfish. It holds on to things. You know, when you work and you make money, you might think like, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And now you might buy food and this is mine, you know, it belongs to me. Or you buy clothes and now this is mine and mine. So there's all these things that the unenlightened mind is going to have craving and attachment to. It's going to be holding on and it becomes very selfish. So we practice generosity of giving and sharing more than is strictly required in any given situation of our time, effort, energy, and resources. But you need to do that from the middle because if you shared extensively and you didn't have the resources that you needed to sustain your life, that's not going to be wise. But also if you were selfish and you were complacent in your practice of generosity, then the mind's not going to be liberated because it's going to be holding on to things very tightly. So you'd like to move this mind to the middle where you're comfortable giving and sharing more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources. This can be as simple as you're walking into a store and you're opening the door and rather than just open a door and walk in, you notice there's somebody behind you and you might hold the door and, and invite them to go in first without any expectation of anything in return. You're not expecting a thank you. You're not expecting a smile or anything like that. You're just doing it because you know it's the right thing to do in order to train your mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Or somebody drops something on the floor. You might pick it up and say, sir, ma'am, or whatever, you know, this is yours. You dropped it. Not expecting a thank you, not requiring one, but just doing it because you know it's the right thing to do. And there's other things you can do in terms of sharing your food or your clothing or your financial resources or other things like this. And you get to choose, you know, when and how much of that stuff you choose to share, but remembering to do this in the middle so that you can sustain your life. So when you work with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity in order to train the mind to let go, now the mind won't have this craving and holding on and craving for permanence. And gradually over several weeks and months, you gradually train the mind, bringing your breathing mindfulness meditation practice up and bringing your practice of generosity up. And this will help you to let go of this cravings, desires, attachments, so that you can practice the third noble truth. The way that you can verify this one for yourself is go back to that breakup that you had with the boyfriend or girlfriend, and right afterwards, you might have been angry or sad or frustrated because of the craving, desire, attachment. You might have had the boredom, the loneliness. You might have missed them, right? But at some point, you let that go. You're like, you know what? it's fine, they're gone now, I'm just gonna move on with my life. And at that point, when you release the attachment, then your mind gained a bit more peacefulness, maybe a bit more joy. You might even started laughing, right? So it's not until the mind lets go that it can experience the freedom of those strong feelings of discontentedness. And that's the third noble truth of training the mind to let go. And you'll be able to more easily do that when you practice breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is the two generalized antidotes or remedies to fix this in the unenlightened mind. Because the unenlightened mind, it craves permanence, but another way to say that is it does not like impermanence. It does not like change. So anytime there's change, 
the unenlightened mind doesn't like this because it's craving permanence. So what you're training it to do is understand impermanence through breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. And you're doing that gradually through gradual training, gradual practice, and then there's gradual progress. The fourth noble truth is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. That's what we're starting to learn over these three sessions where you're deeply understanding each individual step and you're implementing them into your life practice, bringing them up more and more to the ideal. It's kind of like eight individual dials that you're dialing these in closer and closer. So over the course of three Sundays, I'm going to be deeply going into each step so that you can see what each step is and then you can incorporate it into your life and get more and more benefit. And then not only are we going to discuss it here, but then we're going to discuss it as part of chapter five as well. But there we'll only spend one class talking about all the steps. So that'll be a reminder and a refresh for you. And there's different times throughout this course that I'll kind of refresh you on this, but you're going to probably need to read. You're going to maybe need to watch this class again, perhaps. You're going to need to reflect on this and start seeing the truth in it. But it's the eightfold path that is the complete, perfect plan that the Buddha described that's going to help you build up this life practice and train the mind to completely eliminate all discontent feelings where you'll experience this enlightened mental state of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And as you're working towards that goal, you'll see these various glimpses of enlightenment. Enlightenment isn't like the light is on or it's off. It's not like a light switch. Instead, as you're developing your mind and you're gradually eliminating the pollution of mind, you'll get these various glimpses. It might be for a few seconds, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, where the mind is just completely satisfied. There's complete contentedness and joy in the mind. You might feel like there's nothing else that the mind needs at this point. Everything's completely wonderful. In that period, you can see that the mind has the potential to get to this enlightened mental state. There's these glimpses of enlightenment that you experience. In the unenlightened state, it's only a matter of time before it becomes shaken up again. But as you remove more and more of this pollution, this time of experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, it just elongates more and more and more to the point where you've gone one year, two years, three years without experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. And there you will know that the mind is enlightened because you're not experiencing any discontentedness anymore. And this is how you can see the truth for yourself, that things that once arose anger in the mind, you do some training with the Buddhist teachings, and now maybe you experience frustration. A little bit more training, maybe the mind is just annoyed with that same thing. A little bit more training, now you experience that same thing that you know you used to get so angry at. Now the mind isn't angry at all. It's not even annoyed. There's just peace and joy in the mind. So there you can see that your mind's becoming more and more liberated because you're getting these glimpses of the improvements that the mind is making. And that's how you know you're learning the truth and headed in the right direction towards enlightenment. So let me pause here before we talk about right intention and see what questions you guys might have on the Four Noble Truths. You can put that into the comment section of YouTube or Zoom or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, sir. Um, Miranda has a question on YouTube. Thank you, ma'am. Um, on YouTube, Max is asking a two-part question here. The first part is, 
he asks, saying something like, I hope you have a good day. Is it craving, correct? Is it best to just tell someone to be well? So what you'll notice as you're starting to learn the path to enlightenment is there are certain words that we use and certain phrases that we use in common language that has craving built into it because as we grow up the people around us are unenlightened and our mind is unenlightened that's the whole reason why we're born and we're coming into this world and we use certain language like i want to go to the movies or do you want to have dinner or something like that and we start using this language because that's what everyone else is using because we don't know any better but then the problem is is that if someone says yes i want to go to the movies you get happy and if they say no i don't want to go to the movies you might get disappointed or sad this is the discontentedness so if you change your language and the way that you talk with people around you you'll notice that this will actually promote the mind being more healthy and it'll help you to bring the teachings more into focus. So words like, I hope you have a good day, this is kind of indicative of longing and yearning. Like, I hope, you know, I really want you to have a good day. Or you might just say, you know, have a wonderful day or have a lovely day instead of I hope. So you might notice that as you're progressing on this path, understanding more and more about these teachings, your language slightly changes, where you might say, you know, I would like to go to the movies, or are you interested in going to dinner? Would you like to go to dinner? Things like this, instead of using the word want, or I expect you to do this, and, and things like this. So Max, I don't use the word hope. I use words like, you know, have a lovely day or have a wonderful day or, you know, may you be well or something like that. I have erased all of those words like want, expectation, hope, and all those others. And I've replaced them with like or interest and things like this. Yes, thank you, sir. The second part of this question is or saying, quote unquote, I hope I get this job versus having a goal or interest or plan to get a new job, but not being attached to the outcome. Exactly. So I would like to get this new job or I'm interested in get this new job. It would be wonderful if I got this new job. These kind of things are taking out the longing and yearning because the way that we speak is the way that the mind thinks. So if you change the way that you speak, this is changing the mind and how it relates to the world around you. This is what you're doing as part of the path to enlightenment is you're changing the way that the mind processes the things around you. You're essentially rewiring the mind. So if you can start focusing on that in some cases, some people might choose to do that, you'll notice that the mind will think more clear and you'll actually be much more successful around you. Sometimes if you go up to somebody and you say, do you want to go to dinner? They might feel like you're pushing them or you're forcing them or you're nagging them to go. Whereas if you say, hi, honey, would you like to go to dinner tonight? Or would you be interested in going to watch a movie? Right? People are more likely to be like, oh, this is my choice. Okay, well, I make my own free will choice here instead of want. So you'll find that not only does it transform your mind and how you think and how you relate to the world around you, but you'll notice that people will be more responsive when you use these words that don't have craving, desire, attachment embedded in them. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. And mm -hmm. Max says, thank you, sir, also. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all the questions we have on YouTube at this time. And David has a question in Zoom. He asks, 
So the main goal is to let go of craving and attachment and apply the antidote of generosity. Breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. These are part of the main goals, but you're going to see as part of the rest of the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings, you're going to need to learn a lot more. This isn't just a one class thing and the mind gets solved like that. You're going to need this seven month program. You're going to need even more training beyond that to really transform the mind. So the crux of the Four Noble Truths and establishing right view is, yes, acknowledging and understanding that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing your discontent feelings, and then using breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity as a generalized training. But what you're going to see as we go forward in this class is there's actually something called the three poisons. So right here in the Four Noble Truths, we're talking about just craving, but then we're going to make it deeper and we're going to help you understand craving, anger, and what's called ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. These are the three unwholesome roots that are really causing the mind to experience what it experiences. Then we're going to go even deeper and we're going to explain the 10 fetters, the 10 individual problems. This is the way that the Buddhist teachings work is there's this layered approach. Is in the Four Noble Truths, you're getting kind of a top line layer to understand the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. And then when you understand that and you're practicing it to a certain level, then it gets peeled back and you go down a little bit deeper for three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And there's certain antidotes that you understand at that level as well. And then you pull that back and then you see, oh, there's these 10 fetters. Okay, what are these and what are the individual pollutions and remedies to these? So here you're learning the beginning part, which is right view. But then later on, as you progress, you're going to understand the bigger picture of what the overall problem is and more of the solutions as well. Thank you, sir. He goes on to ask possessions in itself are non-harmful. It's the attachment to the object you have. It's in the mind, not the object. That's the problem. Exactly. So even like a cup of water, we all know that the human body needs water. The water isn't the problem, right? A mind can actually be attached to water. Say that I'm in a car and I go off on this hike and it's supposed to be an all day hike and say 30, 45 minutes into the hike, you realize, oh my goodness, I forgot my water. And now there's this craving, oh my goodness, my water. And there's like this death march back to the car. And oh my goodness, my water, my water, my water, right? This is a craving. This is a longing. This is the yearning, not the water, but the way the mind is choosing to process this and it's longing and yearning for the water. But there can be somebody else out on the trail for 30, 45 minutes be like, hmm, I forgot my water. I should probably go get that. I'm going to be out on the trail for eight or 10 hours. I need to have some water. So let me make my way back to the car and get the water, right? And then you calmly walk back to the car and you get your water. So in this situation, the consistent thing is there's water. The water is not the craving. That's just the object. It's how the mind is longing for it that causes the mind to get shaken up. Okay, and I'm not sure if this last one is a statement or a question. Should I read it? Sure. Okay, and by the way, we don't have to think that our mind will be will be more comfortable if we get a new object of desire. 
Yes. Yeah, so the problem with craving is that the mind thinks that this object is going to provide some lasting satisfaction. So that's why it chases after it. Whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, a new pair of shoes, a new purse, new makeup, new job, whatever it is, the mind is chasing because it thinks that this object is going to provide lasting satisfaction. And this is where the mind gets confused because if you do get the objects of your affection, you kind of get this reinforcement. You get these pleasant feelings, this happiness, this excitement, this elation. And it kind of reinforces that, hey, this chase was worthwhile because I got something good. I got these pleasant feelings. But then the mind oftentimes doesn't relate the painful feelings to the fact of that it allowed itself to get these conditioned pleasant feelings. So for example, if you're chasing after a job and you just want this job so badly and you chase and chase and chase and chase and you get the job and now you get so excited and happy and you just think this job is the best thing ever. Well now say three years later, five years later, the company goes out of business or you get laid off or you get fired and now you feel these painful feelings. You don't associate those painful feelings five years later to the fact that you put your craving into chasing this job. You allow the mind to base its inner feelings on the condition that you had this job. So now five years later, when you're experiencing the sadness, the unenlightened mind isn't wise enough to understand that, oh yeah, the reason why I'm experiencing these painful feelings is because of my craving five years ago when I got those pleasant feelings. So when you study like this and you can see the truth, now you can see what's going on in the unenlightened mind and you don't allow the mind to experience conditioned pleasant feelings. When you feel the mind chasing and longing and yearning after something, you cut that off and let it go. You enjoy the situation. Like if you got a new job, it's like, oh, wonderful. I got a new job. This is outstanding. This is going to be a great job. Let me go in here and do a wonderful job. But you don't allow the mind to take on this conditioned happiness, excitement, elation. Or if you get a new pair of shoes, oh, outstanding. Wonderful. I got a new pair of shoes. These are going to serve me well. My feet are going to be so much more comfortable. Thank goodness I got these new pair of shoes, right? You can enjoy the situation, but when you allow the mind to have conditioned feelings and it's chasing, 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 wanting those conditioned feelings, you're setting yourself up to sabotage the mind. You're setting yourself up for discontentedness because if it gets the objects of its affection, it gets those pleasant feelings. And if it doesn't get the objects of your affection, then it's going to get those painful feelings. So you can get a handle on all of this through understanding the entire Eightfold Path and practicing it very deeply. Thank you, sir. And Tomas uh, writes, as far as I do understand Buddhist, it is about issues relating ego and intellectual existing. It means non-dual understanding through present time. I don't suggest at this point you try to summarize or boil the teachings of the Buddha down to something like that. Because if you look at the words of the Buddha, he repeatedly says, what did I teach? He says, what I taught is the elimination of discontentedness. That's what he's actually teaching. He points to the Four Noble Truths many times. He says, what did I teach? I taught what is discontentedness. 
the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness in the path forward. That's what he's teaching. And then, yes, you're going to need to dissolve the ego. You're going to need to learn how to love without attachment. You're going to need to learn so many different things. But that's where the real joy in this journey can come because it's really fun to learn. It's really enjoyable to learn. There'll be challenges and struggles along the way, but then you've got a teacher and you've got other members of the community to help you along the way. So, I wouldn't suggest trying to boil it down, particularly using new words like non-duality and all of these other things that you see people talking about. Instead, just keep it very simple. What did the Buddha teach? He taught to eliminate discontentedness because he's guiding you to that enlightened mental state where the mind's peaceful and joyful permanently. Thank you, sir. Um, Joey asks, or Joe, I think it's Joe, sorry. In my house, I have a lot of possessions. Should I give them away if I don't truly need or use them? This is a decision for you to make. It is wise to not have so many possessions because the more possessions you have, then the mind has more opportunity to grab on and hold on to these things. It's very common for people who are just starting to learn this path and they start learning what the real problem is and they see all these possessions around them to start kind of cleaning out their house and start letting go of a lot of things. So if you did choose to do that, you're going to find a lot more liberation in that. But whether you choose to do that or not is up to you. But you will find that that helps you with generosity. That also helps you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But when or if or how you choose to do that is up to you. Thank you, sir. And Tonka has her hand raised. I was wondering, once uh, we deeply understand that uh, no object, no event, no experience will uh, bring us lasting satisfaction in this life, uh, uh, then uh, we can feel a little bit shaken up. And uh, I was wondering, how, how, do, how do we motivate ourselves to still play it? our roles in this world as employee, as a parent. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, like when we realize nothing, absolutely nothing will bring that lasting satisfaction other than uh, enlightenment, I assume. So where to find that inspiration to still, you know, function on daily basis? Yeah, this is where the enlightenment factor of energy comes into play, is that you understand that all these objects aren't going to bring that lasting satisfaction, but you still need certain things in your life. You still need clothing. You still need a job. You're still going to need friends and family and relationships. And the thing is that you learn how to no longer base your inner feelings on these things, but you learn how to enjoy it without having craving, desire, attachment. All through this life and previous lives too, all we've ever known is craving, desire, attachment. So it's quite a transition as we're starting to transition to figure out how to enjoy life without craving, desire, attachment, because that's all we've ever known when our mind goes up and down and up and down. So you're kind of redirecting the mind and learning this middle way of how to enjoy things and how to have motivation and enthusiasm and initiative in life without it being based on craving, desire, attachment, where you're chasing and also not allowing the mind to be complacent. Oftentimes, as you're letting go of craving, the mind will kind of swing over here to complacency or dullness or lethargic condition because you overshoot the middle. 
You know, you don't let go of craving and then whoop, go right to the middle. Instead, it tends to overshoot and then goes over here to complacency. It's like a pendulum. And then it kind of swings back over here and you're starting to crave again, but less than before. And then it kind of lets go of that and it swings over here. And eventually it kind of comes into the middle. And now you start to understand where that middle is. And part of getting to that middle is practicing the enlightenment factor of energy, where you arise motivation and enthusiasm and initiative, but it's not based on craving. So it's training the mind to be able to do that and see how you can enjoy life without craving desire attachment. This is where a community of practitioners is very helpful coming to retreats and things like this. So you can be around people who are working to awaken their mind and get to a higher consciousness and you can see how you can have fun, but just not be attached to and cling to the things that you're being involved in, like possessions and relationships and so forth. You're actually going to enjoy life a whole lot more when you don't have craving, desire, attachment. Because when you have craving, desire, attachment, if something happens to your children or your grandchildren or one of your possessions, you're going to get angry and frustrated and irritated. And then the mind swings back over chasing after this new thing. But when you aren't having craving, desire, attachment and clinging, you can go enjoy those relationships. You can have dinner together. You can spend time with your grandchildren and things like this. And then when it's done, it's over and you just move on and go to the next thing. And your mind isn't longing and yearning for something in the past or longing and yearning for something in the future. So it's a matter of learning and fine tuning the mind and training the mind to have this enthusiasm, this motivation, this initiative and not basing it on any craving and the mind just doesn't know how to do that as it's getting going because it's never known anything other than craving it appears that our that is all the questions we have at this time okay so now let's look at right intention this is the second step of the eightfold path right intention the buddha says in what monks is right intention the intention of renunciation the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. So this is the second step rounding out the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. Here the Buddha is explaining three things that's right intention. Some people translate this as right thinking or right thought. This is where you're setting your intention of what it is that you're going to be doing on a daily basis and what it is that you're looking to accomplish. What renunciation or the intention of renunciation is, is the interest and willingness to let go and give up unwholesomeness in the mind's false beliefs and the mind's false perceptions of reality. One of the key things that the mind needs to let go of in terms of practicing renunciation is the belief or the false perception or misperception that other people are causing you to be angry. This is from right view. The perception or the misperception and misunderstanding that the annihilated mind has, one of the major ones, is that other people are causing you to be angry or this situation is annoying you, when in reality it's the craving, desire, attachment that's doing that. So the mind needs to be willing to practice renunciation where it's willing to let go. 
And as long as it's holding on to its false beliefs and its misperceptions, it's not going to be able to have an open mind. Because if your mind is unenlightened, there's certain false beliefs, opinions, and views that you currently have. And as long as those are in there, then the mind's going to continue to get shaken up. And what you need to do is be sure that you have this open mind where you understand that there's certain things that you believe now, certain misperceptions that you have now that you need to let go of. And there's certain new wisdom that you need to bring into the mind. And when you understand that, then you're practicing the intention of renunciation, that you're willing to let go and no longer hold on to the false beliefs and opinions and views, but you're not letting them go without any kind of wise decision making. Because as you're learning the teachings of the Buddha, you're reflecting on them and independently verifying them and practicing. So as you start to observe through independently verifying the teachings like the Four Noble Truths that, oh my goodness, I've had this misperception, this misunderstanding my whole life. I thought that other people were causing me to be angry and frustrated and annoyed. And now I can see very clearly I'm causing this myself. So what you're doing is you're observing that, yes, your mind has these misperceptions and misunderstandings, and you're not just getting rid of them because somebody told you to. Instead, you're independently verifying the truth, and then you train the mind to let go and no longer hold on to these misperceptions and these false beliefs. So renunciation and the intention of renunciation, being willing to let go and have an open mind is very important in order to develop the whole rest of the path to enlightenment. So that's why it's part of the second step in this wisdom section that you need to be willing to let go. Then there's this intention of non-ill will. Non-ill will is a double negative. So this is the same as saying goodwill. So having the intention of goodwill. What ill will is, is animosity or bitterness. It's anger, hatred, and these lesser versions like frustration and irritation and annoyance. Even the slightest dislike is coming from ill will. So if you practice the intention of goodwill, this is actually loving kindness, having active goodwill towards all beings having a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And if you have this intention of goodwill where you're interested in seeing other beings be well, then you're less likely to cause harm to these other beings and do harmful things. You're not going to be vindictive and resentful towards others. But this is something you need to train in the mind. And we use loving kindness meditation to train this. This is a four-part series that I'm going to do starting about three weeks from now after we do the breathing mindfulness meditation, that four-part series. I'll do a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation, teaching you how to arise loving-kindness through meditation so that then in your daily life, you can start practicing through your intentions, your speech, and your actions loving-kindness. Because as long as you have ill will towards others, then your speech and your actions are going to be unskillful. You're going to conduct yourself in the world in harmful ways, in harsh ways, and then this is going to drive people away from you. You're not going to be able to be harmonious in all situations. So what you would like to do is get to this goodwill where you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and that's done through practicing loving-kindness meditation and then practicing it 
through your intention, speech, and actions where you're now polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. And this just takes time for the mind to learn these things and gradually practice them. This is why it's called a life practice or developing a life practice. The third aspect of right intention is the intention of harmlessness. Harmlessness is not causing or being incapable of causing harm because as long as you're causing harm to others, then that harm is going to come back to you. So if your mind is shaken up with discontentedness, you're going to make unwise decisions that causes harm to others. And now if you're hostile or aggressive or bitter or harsh to others, that's just going to come back to you. So what you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment, as you learn all the individual steps, is you're cleaning up the way that the mind thinks about the world and about other people, and you're improving your wisdom, your moral conduct, your mental discipline. And now as you function in the world, you're going to be functioning in more loving and kind ways through your intention, speech, and actions. And this is where you'll see your relationships blossom. They'll transform. Your personal and professional relationships will gradually start to blossom because now you're functioning differently. Other people might choose to function in different ways than what you're choosing to function in. But as long as you're learning and practicing this path and training your mind, you will see that the condition of your mind and your life will gradually improve because now you're relating to the world, you're functioning in the world, you're doing things in the world differently than you did before. As long as you continue to do things the way that you did in the past, you're going to keep getting the same results of anger and frustration and maybe people being bitter and hostile towards you. But when you transform your mind and now you start functioning in the world differently, the people around you will start shifting and changing a bit. Not that you're expecting that or you're requiring that, but you'll see how this occurs. As you progress on this path, there are certain relationships that you have right now that maybe you're holding on to and you're clinging to them, but they're quite hostile or quite bitter. And you might choose to move on from that relationship and no longer continue in that relationship. And then there's other relationships in your life right now that are problematic. There might be some rub, but you're more committed to that relationship. And as you train your mind and you improve the condition of your mind, maybe this person is also willing to do some work as well. And now you guys will sort out your relationship and things will improve. And then there's new people who you haven't even met yet that as you start practicing these teachings, you'll start functioning in a more loving and kind way, being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And now that relationship will be on solid footing and you won't have attachment in your relationship. And you can have these very fulfilling relationships where they can be very enjoyable because you're no longer functioning through this craving, this anger, and this ignorance that we're going to talk about as we get to chapter eight, this unknowing of true reality. So you're going to need to arise this knowing of true reality, understanding these natural laws of existence. So now as you function in the world with this wisdom, you can now navigate the world in a different way than you did before. So there's this summary that I put together to help you guys understand what it is that I shared in today's class. And then I'll open up to questions that you guys might have. There's 
the right view, which is the Four Noble Truths that we just talked about, accepting responsibility for your own feelings, your intentions, your speech, your actions, essentially understanding that you're causing all your own discontent feelings. And now by focusing on the real problem, which is craving, desire, attachment, you can actually get to a real solution. Because as long as we blame other people, we're not going to be able to solve the problem because they're not the problem. They might have problems themselves, they might have craving in their mind themselves, but they're not causing you to be angry or frustrated. Your mind's causing it itself. So when you focus on the real problem, you'll experience the real solutions. And that's what the Buddha is going to give you over the course of learning his teachings. Then there's right intention, which is practicing the intention of renunciation, having this open mind, being willing to let go of things that are no longer serving its purpose, letting go of the unwholesomeness, letting go of your false beliefs and your misperceptions, having the intention of non-ill will or loving kindness, having a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and having the intention of harmlessness, being incapable or unwilling to cause harm to other beings. And this rounds out the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. So let me see if you guys have any questions on right intention or anything else that we talked about today. Yes, sir. we have a few questions. I'm sorry. I'm going to go to Miranda first for questions on YouTube. Sounds okay, good. Wonderful. Thank you, ma'am. Um, <clears throat> on YouTube, Joe Neal asks, I'm very new to these teachings, but I feel that trying to take the human emotions out of losing a person due to death or breakup, grouping the depths of love is very hard to switch on and off. And he goes on to give an example I guess I'd have to use a comparison. I love cheeseburgers, but I have removed them from my life. But it by no means compares to the love I have for my partner. That love has no off switch. Okay, so this is where you're going to understand love without attachment, true love. This is part of chapter 15 in the book. When we get to that, we're going to be talking about true love because what you're describing is love right now, like loving a cheeseburger. It's not actually love. We misunderstand love in the unenlightened state. We think that craving, desire, attachment is love. You might have a longing and a yearning for a cheeseburger and wow, it tastes so great and, and you just get these happy feelings when you eat a cheeseburger, but that's not actually love. Love is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and loving beings as they are unconditional love and that's what you might feel for your parents or your life partner your children or people like this but the problem is is that love is being tainted by craving desire attachment this longing and yearning this expecting things to be a certain way so when you get that craving desire attachment out of the way and you practice true love now you can experience more fulfilling relationships because you're no longer putting expectations on others of what they should or shouldn't do but as long as the mind is misunderstanding what love is, which the unrelated mind typically is, that this craving desire attachment is masquerading as love and we think that this is love. But when you understand what true love is, love without attachment, and you start practicing that more and more, you get the craving desire attachment out of the way and now your relationships can be more sustaining and more fulfilling. So you can actually eliminate grief and heartache and arguments from your relationships but you'll be practicing true love. Oftentimes, because we mistakenly believe that craving, desire, attachment is love, we think that the reason why we hurt and we have pain 
we think it's because of love, but it's not. Those painful feelings are because of craving, desire, attachment. When you understand what true love is, which is love without attachment, loving beings as they are unconditionally, then you realize that this genuine interest in seeing others be well, it doesn't promote and it doesn't produce any painful feelings whatsoever. It's the craving, desire, attachment that's producing the painful feelings. But you may not see that clearly right now because you haven't learned the teachings well enough. But as you train your mind, you can get to the point where you don't grieve based on somebody's death because when somebody dies, you might feel like the carpet has been pulled out from under your feet or you've been chopped off at the knees and the mind's all shaken up. You can't imagine going forward in life without this person. But that's because of craving, desire, attachment, not the love. But because craving, desire, attachment is masquerading as love and the unrelated mind thinks that that's what love is, then it doesn't understand that grief is actually not part of love. It's part of the craving, desire, attachment. So you can actually get to the point where when someone dies in your life, you can love them. You can appreciate the time you had together. You can be grateful for the time you had together, but you don't have to feel like someone chopped you off at the knees or they pulled the carpet off from under your feet. You can just remain with those good memories and all the things that you've done in the past and have appreciation and gratitude for the time you spent together and the love can remain but you don't need this grief you can get rid of all of that and all these other discontent feelings as well yes thank you sir and then on youtube michael jenkins asked um buddhahood asks conventional truths earth aging sickness and death all impermanent phenomena are body and mind or ultimate truths, objects shown, known by wisdom, consciousness that perceive reality. I'm not really sure what's being asked there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not understanding that question either. It doesn't quite sound like a, a question. Maybe, Michael, you can reword that. And if you need to put it into the Facebook group, you can put it in there and I'll answer it there for you. Or you can re-ask it here during the class. Okay, thank you, sir. And then Thomas asks, on the three jewels, how can they be relating Sangha meditations and Dhamma talk on daily practice? Or, yeah, this daily is, basic practices. Yeah, this is another question I think we can take offline, Thomas. So if you would like to put that into the Facebook group, because it's not really related to what we're discussing today. Typically, I will open up to kind of freeform questions like this in different classes, particularly on Wednesday. That's a great day to ask any and all questions. But here, when we first start the group learning program, since we have a lot of people that are learning from the beginning, I like to stay really focused on the topic that we're discussing today so that people can get really firmly rooted in understanding the teachings. So if you'd like to put that question into the Facebook group, then that might be a better place to answer that one. Okay, wonderful, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all the questions that are on YouTube at this time. It appears that is all the questions that we have at this time, sir. Okay. Well, next week, we're going to be moving into the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path. Here you can see that we've covered right view and right intention. And remember, we're going to be revisiting these. So if you didn't learn everything that I shared today, which I'm sure you didn't, 
don't worry. You don't have to absorb everything in just one class. So the way that you should look at this is the research shows that when you go through a learning experience, you might learn 10, 20, 30 percent of what it is that's being shared with you. And then when you repeat that, you might learn 40, 50, 60 percent. And then you repeat it again, you learn more. So whatever you learn today and you understand today, then wonderful. The Buddha says if you understand even one sentence of his teachings, this is good for your welfare and peacefulness for a very long time. And I imagine you probably understood more than just one sentence sentence today. So that's outstanding. But between maybe watching this video again or reading the book, you will gradually start understanding. And if you didn't get everything today, no worries, because we're going to be revisiting this in future classes. And that's why here at the beginning, I'm giving you this overview so that you can understand, but also we're going very deep into the individual steps of the Eightfold Path so that then you can have kind of an understanding of the bigger picture of what the Path to Enlightenment is all about. And then when we start chapter one, from there, we'll go chapter by chapter and progress in the book from there. So we did the wisdom section today. Next week, we're going to be doing the moral conduct, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. And here we're going to be talking about the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. I'm going to be discussing that a little bit at the beginning. And then we're going to be discussing the future class after that, the mental discipline, where that'll round out your understanding of the Eightfold Path because you'll understand right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this will really help you to get a bigger picture and a lot of detail of what the Eightfold Path is all about. So I would like to just thank all of you for joining for today's class, because as you're learning and practicing the teachings, you're going to see that you can independently verify what the Buddha taught. That's one of the beauties of his teachings is that you're not believing anything at all. He never said, just believe me. Instead, he's invited you to investigate and examine his teachings because he knew that his teachings lead to enlightenment. And it was just a matter of somebody having enough dedication and determination and diligence to learn them, reflect on them and practice them. And as you do, he knew that your mind was going to improve because his mind was very similar to your mind in the way that it functions. There's only kind of one thing about a Buddha's mind that is very different than a common individual. And we're going to talk about this when we get to chapter three. But other than that, your mind functions exactly the same way as him. He was a human being. He was a teacher. So he got to enlightenment. You can do it too. There just needs to be this arising of effort and energy with dedication and diligence. And I'll help you to understand these teachings, but of course, you'll need to do the work of improving and bringing up into your life the breathing mindfulness meditation, the generosity, understanding the Four Noble Truths and right intention, so that now from this point forward, when in the past you might have gotten angry or frustrated, you might have looked to blame somebody else. Instead, you can sit down and you can look inward and you can reflect. What is it that caused this discontentedness? There's some craving there. There's something your mind's longing and yearning for. And if you can identify what those cravings are, then you're starting to practice right view. You're starting to practice the Four Noble Truths. And where you're having difficulty identifying what those cravings, desires, attachments are, that's where you reach out to your teacher through Facebook, through the online classes, through private message, through personal guidance, because I will help you develop this ability 
20. Just like you need to develop the skill of meditation, you'll need to develop the ability to observe your cravings, desires, attachments, know what they are and how to eliminate them. So where you need help with that, feel free to reach out and let me know and I will help you. So this Wednesday, we're gonna be doing the second class of our breathing mindfulness meditation. And that's a four part series. And then next Sunday, we're gonna be doing the second part of this three part series of the Eightfold Path. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining the class. Thank you for all your questions. Thank you for being interested to learn and practice these teachings because as you gradually learn and train your mind, this is the very best thing you could do for yourself for those close to you and all of humanity. Because as your mind starts functioning better and you're not causing harm to others, less and less harm is coming to you. You're causing less and less harm to the people around you. And all of humanity is gradually becoming more and more peaceful, more kind, more gentle, and a more loving society. So thank you all. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.